to Uproar in the Studio, your weekly New York-based Chinese blockbuster podcast. I'm Noah. I'm Reza. I'm Andrew. And this is the Jackie Chan post-Rush Hour 3 season. This week we're talking about 1911, released in 2011. You don't have to see it, we'll give a synopsis, but if you want to watch it unspoiled, listen to the show afterwards. Later, we're joined by Edward Friedman, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Chief Editor of the English Translation of Yang Jisheng's Tombstone. We'll be talking about fluctuating nationalism in China since the 1911 revolution. But first, we talk about the movie with returning champ, three-time guest, poet Yi Wu. Here's our conversation, starting with a synopsis. This film follows the events of the Xinhai Revolution, which led to the overthrow of China's final Qing emperor and the establishment of the Republic of China. Created for the revolution's 100th anniversary, the film's action follows the historic events of 1911 in China with the dual protagonists in Huang Xing, played by Jackie Chan, and Sun Yat-sen, played by Winston Chow. The film begins with early uprisings and closes with the end of Sun Yat-sen's term as China's president, with both gritty war scenes and political discourse. Amputations, sham marriages, and the true revolution yet to follow. This is 1911. Okay, so do we want to get into this movie? Because, like, this is definitely an interesting movie, I think. Yeah, this is a great yeah. movie. What did you think of this movie? Well, I mean, for me, like, as, as a Chinese person, I, I, I mean, as American, too, but I really enjoyed it. Like, I <laughs> I mean, I, from a personal perspective, it was a great movie. But at the same time, it could have been better, you know, in, in many ways. You know, because it's, as a person who lived in America for most of my life, a lot of it was new. But I read some reviews which says that, audience in China felt it was a little bit what they call it typical, you know, mediocre. And I can understand from their view because they, they saw this type of grandiose war scenes and families torn apart and crying. Like to us it's great, but to to them it's kinda of like <laughs> it's it on T V all, all the time. It's, yeah, it's on T V all the time. Yeah. So so yeah, I got two different feelings from when I was watching it versus how people on the internet on the Chinese interwebs viewed it. One thing I saw was how I saw it differently from them is I did see some good ideas like when Sun Yat-sen was saying that we are fighting for people's dignity because we want equal land. You know, those things he he did talk about why he was in revolution. But a lot of people who, who watched the movie in China, they, they felt that that part was kind of played down, which was probably true. Like mm-hmm. Jackie Chan probably wouldn't want to talk too much about democracy, even though the, yeah. the revolution was about democracy. Like he only mentioned it. I think for for someone who lived in America, who was not political, who never really been through some kind of a upheaval. I mean, 2016 was probably the most dramatic events. In, dude, dude, in we're in 2020. Time. Let's go. Yeah, we, we gotta we, fucking we, 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 yeah. <laughs> let's start this shit. <laughs> yeah. So for us, like he did talk considerably, but I don't know. Like a lot of a lot of people were saying that Jackie Chan was trying to tamp down any any rhetoric about freedom and democracy. Um, the thing that intrigued me was how people in it were treated. Like, do you remember this this one young man? He appeared like this twice. This like well dressed guy. Yeah, he was the gray one suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it was was like thick rim hipster glasses. Remember <laughs> him? So he what happened to him later was not good. So that's why they, he only made a camera. Like in the actual revolution, nineteen eleven revolution, he was a very important figure. Like. He was pretty much Dr. Sun's uh, assistant in, for a long time. And I think he was the one who he was the one who drafted Dr. Sun's testament of his, his will when, when he passed away. So he was a really interesting guy throughout the history of China. But what they didn't want to play him too much because the last thing in his life was was considered really bad, which was really bad because he set up a collaborationist government for Japan in the last year of his life. Wow. So, like, he was a revolutionary. He was a hero all along. And when Japan invaded, he originally was saying, we should make, we, we should have peace. We can't, probably can't defeat Japan. Then he started a government on behalf of Japan. So I think in the entire Chinese-speaking world, 
he's someone who's uh, wild, wildly panned. You know, he's like Benedict Arnold. Well, he's no one he, likes him. Like, he's wow. got sort of Benedict Arnold vibes in this uh, movie by meeting with the uh, Qing general, right? Like he's a he's he's got sort of like he's a, like the intermediary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like associating with he the enemy like, a little bit he, in this he movie. He was described as like not an official revolutionary or something, right? In the movie, kind of. Yeah, like, yeah. But yeah, also, I, didn't, I did. Um, I did notice that kid though. Just yeah, Wang Jingwei. If you if you look into him, it's it's such a waste. You know, what was his name? Wang Jingwei. Like his first name is. And he was also a very handsome guy. But when I was little, my dad told me two people were considered like the most good-looking Chinese men in in that era. One was him, Wang Jingwei, and the other one is Zhou Enlai, which oh. was the mm. <laughs> nice. You, you, you knew him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but you, on what you were saying earlier, throughout this movie, it felt like you got a lot more from the revolutionaries about what they were fighting against than what they were fighting for. Just on that sort of suppression of the democratic ideal. And more about like the valor in rising up. Hmm. I don't know if I got that vibe. I thought you didn't really a lot you about didn't democracy. Like that? One of the questions I wanted to eventually ask was, how do you think the Communist Party like squares just so much? Like Sun Yat-sen repeatedly in the movie is fighting for democracy explicitly, and what? that just. And in one of the spe- speeches at the end, it sounds almost... I mean, it is a bourgeois revolution, right? And in one of the speeches it at is. the end, he's yeah. like, mm-hmm. we've bought, we've fought for the banks in China. We're, we fought for Chinese yeah. railroads, Chinese banks, you know? And it's like, he's such a sort of cosmopolitan figure and also so good at talking to bankers that it's like... It's, it's almost strange to me <laughs> that... I don't know, the... the I guess I'm curious about what his sort of legacy in China is these days, right? It's it's interesting that like they would make this movie about him, and they do make other like, pro Sun Yat Sen movies, right? I mean, in in the official history of China, he's here's the thing: it's kind of a paradox because he's still honored so much in the official history of China. Like even the Chinese Communist Party says that he was a revolutionary hero, even though he was a he was leading a bourgeois revolution, right. but they still held him as the father of the nation, like Taiwan does too, because both sides yeah. held him at so so high a regard. There is some kind of a edgelord, you know, like <laughs> revisionist <laughs> historians in China now, like uh, like people who who you think are like edgy, like they are trying to dig some bad history about him, like okay. as, as for like irony and you know like <laughs> for the he best. Was, he was not he, actually he he was not. Even though his the movie tried to portray him as, as this like selfless guy who just wants what's good for a revolution, in real life he he was not a perfect guy in any regards. Like he was a like there were stories about him womanizing. You know there was things about him. You know what, uh, revolutionaries can't womanize. There was let some, him fuck, dude. There was, <laughs> there was a story about him, you know, doing very very shady politicking and mm. what. What one thing the movie didn't say, which happened, I think, immediately soon after, was, you know, a republic have to have elections, right? So mm-hmm. I think the movie ended before the, the first election happened. Mm-hmm. So in 1912, either 12 or 13, the first election of China happened. And there was a guy named uh, Song Jiao Ren, and he was not, he didn't appear. I think he, he made a very cameo experience where he didn't appear at all, probably they didn't probably didn't show him for, for the sake of avoiding political controversy. But he was uh, a very close associate of Dr. Sun, and he was very one of the prominent revolutionaries. And he was running as the leader of the Nationalist Party, which successor to the revolutionary group at the time. So the Nationalist Party was running for elections, and they were winning. And then Song was to be the first parliamentary leader, like the speaker, like equivalent to. Nancy Pelosi. He was going to be oh, yeah. to have that job. <laughs> My girl. But he was shot and killed just before he could take the office. By whom? By a guy who was who later died in jail. So it's kind of become suspicious. It's like one of those cold cases that uh, okay. they never knew who who did it. And okay. the official history was Yuan Shigai ordered that assassination through one of his assistants. And the unofficial like revisionist edgelord history was that <laughs> was that Dr. Sun assassinated him for inter- internal power struggle with the Nationalist Party. Who who really ordered that assassination still no one knows. So so many things that happened after that. And I think 
I would say from a personal point of view, like probably many people would disagree with me, but I think that assassination probably spelled the end of like a viable Chinese democracy. Like, I mean, imagine if America had a first election and the first leader of the uh, whatever opposition party just got killed for no reason. And I think, I don't know, what do, what do you think? What if the equivalent of, I don't know who the first speaker was, but imagine the first equivalent of Nancy Pelosi in American history just got shot before he- Oh, would, dude, it would be off. awful if Nancy Pelosi got shot. <laughs> no, I mean, like, no, not her, but like, like the first speak, the first uh, like part, party yeah. leader in America, yeah. Well, to be fair, Alexander Hamilton got shot. Yeah, but he wanted that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, was asking for it. <laughs> Imagine Broadway without that. I don't know. I mean, that is an interesting point, though. I mean, if, you know, there was a viable opposition, like, really early in our republic, and they were just shot dead, things would probably would have been different. I mean, we'd be easier to, like, take back or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> No, like, it, w- it would. Uh, that's obviously, like, a very destabilizing thing post-revolution, even if it's... Well, yeah, a- I mean, there was... It's not like the Revolutionary War was, like, just that and then peace. There was the right, War of 1812 that happened would have, would have been, like... Do we want to talk what about... could have been? <laughs> While we're sort of on the subject of, I guess, America in this context, do we want to talk about the foreign actors in this movie? I don't... Like, what was that one American guy doing The guy who played Homer there? was awful. Homer, yeah, what... He was awful. Yeah. Who the fuck I don't is- even know... What the fuck is that saying? I, I don't even know about him. <laughs> was he playing like a CIA prototype, but like OSS, a baboon? whatever? Yeah. I think he was like a Connecticut Yankee in, uh... <laughs> in Dr. Sun's court. I mean, I would say I'm like, I know a fair bit about Chinese history, but I still don't know who that guy is. I didn't have time to look, look him up before, before this podcast. Like, can one of you look him up? I'm sure he existed. <laughs> Yeah, if he was anything like the actor who played him in this movie, I don't think he accomplished much. We haven't talked about Jackie Chan in this movie at all so far. Yeah, Huang Xing, like the, the character he played actually did exist. Sort of the and Trotsky there. I mean, I learned about him when I was a kid. Like I, I, I read about him. I think even in elementary school, they kind of briefly mentioned about him, but I don't know. Okay, now I found out why. Okay, so he. <laughs> he yeah, I'm just looking at Wikipedia. I think. Okay, now. now <laughs> That remind me why he didn't play a, a large role after the revolution because he died in 1916. Mm. So only five years after okay. the revolution, he he died. He died from cirrhosis, <laughs> and he was a given uh-huh. state general. Hadn't have been drinking. <laughs> yep, uh, that's not good. I guess, but um, it, like that also brings us to the point of like, if this revolution is so halting, and if this character is like fizzles out not long after it himself again like i i'm just so surprised that all of this money was put into this basically propaganda movie valorizing this moment in history i think it was just they wanted a character who could have good interplay for jackie chan between like actual frontline action scenes and behind the scenes negotiation he did have that one cool he was the proper revolutionary in this yeah yeah and And he had that's the intention right like jackie chan didn't want to be playing sun yat-sen yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) but he's not just doctrine he's like doctrine and also shooting people right yeah and he had like the like one... he gets his fucking finger shot off, and he says he wants it chopped off so he can use yeah. a gun again. Was that in the rest of the movie? Because I kept looking at his hand, and I yeah. I couldn't it, see that it, it was, was gone. So he was actually it was gone. I okay. also looked at his um, Wikipedia earlier, and he was known as like the eight-handed revolutionary or the eight-fingered revolutionary. Uh-huh. And the eight-handed fun. revolutionary that would be such a like effective revolutionary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, but um, think about how many pamphlets you could write at once. No, but there's also that moment where Sun gets sees him on the boat, and he's like, "Oh, what happened to your fingers?" And he's like, "Oh, you know the revolution." And Sun's like, "Oh, (laughs) well, you know how it is." To to me in San Francisco. To 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 be fair, I wish uh, I wish Jackie Chan did more fighting than he did in the movie. If it was proper Jackie Chan movie, so there is that one scene. Like you were saying, Reza, where they he slides down the steaming hot pole to beat the shit out of those guys. And, like, he makes this, like, cool move with the gun when he sees his guys come up. He just sort of, like, flips it around and he's like, 
No, I'm not fucking around. I'm, yeah. I'm here. I'm good. It was like 40 seconds of classic Jackie Chan in this. Yeah. And I was like, I got fucking hard, man. <laughs> I feel like Jackie Chan in general is kind of moving more towards like guns and away from martial arts because he still wants to do action movies, but they're definitely a lot easier on the body to be just like shooting instead of flipping around the room. Well, I don't even know if it's at least getting old. The promotional heavy. stuff for his new movies, it definitely looks like it's much more gun heavy. I mean, that's sad, I guess, but you know, he's old. Yeah, um, and yeah, I mean, he's he, like he, he a party member. Someone, he plays someone who died soon, so maybe. I, don't know, <laughs> but, I mean, this thought just came through my mind that he, because he he played someone who did so much for the revolution but died like so soon. Mm-hmm. It's kind of maybe he's. He felt some kind of a guilt of conscience, saying he's like serving the power now, and he wished he could have like died earlier. Dude, there you go. There's your edge lord history. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's what he he felt like. He felt that his in his his soul couldn't really handle. Because have you guys seen like the very ending of the movie that have, like a this boilerplate text on it? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. This this revolution was like a dud. The actual revolution yeah. came later. <laughs> The international hegemony never gave up, so the communists had to rise. <laughs> yeah, like, it's so heavy-handed, it's almost funny. Yeah. You know? Yeah, in three seconds, the entire revolution is negated. Right, yeah, yeah, they just dismiss <laughs> the entire movie with one title card at the end. I feel like there's so much happened after mm, that could totally. be explored, but, of course, like, because censorship, they couldn't actually talk about it. And one thing was, remember the Yuan Shigai guy who got the presidency in the end? Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened to him was also not good in the end. That's he, good. He, he, so he's he's a he's a jackass, you know. Like that's yeah, totally. The current assessment of him after the assassination of Song, I just talked about happened like the assassination of the equivalent of Nancy Pelosi in China. Doctor Sun started a what's it called a second revolution, which uh, Huang Xing, Jackie Chan's character, was also in. They so they started a second uprising that failed. So Yuan Shigai uh, suppressed that revolution and. Then Ranchigai dissolved the parliament slash congress. He then what he did was truly terrible. Was he tried to make himself emperor? Okay. So that was hinted at a bunch. Yeah, 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 it was. And he he tried to declare uh, Republic of China to change to Empire of China with him as the first emperor. And of course, no one, everyone says, no shit, no. Like what the fuck. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, no one, no one supported him for that. So he went back to being president, and he died soon after. So after his unsuccessful attempt of uh, putting himself in charge as emperor, he he died soon after. So that's where the the whole regional warlords start fighting each other, and that yeah that, that was pretty messy. I don't I won't go into that. Yeah, it was a terrible time. So the the guy I told the young guy in glass in hipster glasses, Wang Jingwei, he was kind of. I can't say he was Sun's handpicked successor, but he was very close to Sun and almost could have been his successor to lead the party that he founded. Instead, someone else succeeded. His name was, you guys know, Chiang Kai-shek. Who, oh, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> Chiang Kai-shek was the official successor of Sun, Dr. Sun. And, you know, he, he fought World War II, and then the communism took over. So, I guess what I'm wondering here is, is do you think Jackie Chan would have gotten political cred for making this movie? Like the movie was supported by the government, it was uh, to celebrate the centennial of the revolution. Like it was made in 2011, so yeah. remember it happened in 1911. So they made 2011 to to celebrate. So the government did invest in that in that film. Mm. Um, it's also a centennial film. Yeah, well, it's it's his hundredth movie. Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah, yeah. It oh, is yeah, I forgot about that. Hundredth anniversary. His and this movie is movie. also available for free on YouTube. Which is kind of amazing. <laughs> Nothing suspect there. I mean, it's not the sort of movie that's designed to make money. I don't think anybody went into this movie being like, "This is going to make a billion dollars." I think they went into this movie. To We're going to teach this. for free on YouTube. <laughs> We're going to teach this yeah. lesson. Well, uh, you say that, but I still feel like there was a lot of action in there. I think the action art direction is great. Yeah, I thought yeah, the it looks great. Really the good. movie yeah. looks really I, good. I agree. Yeah. My question to you is like, because I don't remember what was happening in 2011. Like when you, because I was a movie buff back then. But when, when when you were alive back then, did you remember this movie being popular in America or have have no, ever? No, not at it? all. Not at all. This yeah. is this is the high the high mark of Obama. 
you know? This is the high mark of Obama and also, like, the high mark of Jackie Chan making movies only for China. I think. I think. <laughs> like, this movie I don't think does well anywhere else. Even though there are, like, el- large elements of it, which I guess is accurate because of Sun Yat-sen, but, like, that take place in English. I guess there's that sort of hint towards, like, oh, maybe the rest of the world will watch it, but I don't think I don't think anybody I don't realistically think was, was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The thing frustrates, frustrates me is that not many Americans know about the 1911 revolution, even though how, despite like how prominent it was, like the first large country to be a Republican government, to be mm-hmm. to have a Republican government in entire Asia or the, the, the so-called. Dude, most like, Americans don't know about any revolution. <laughs> well, French, French revolution. I mean, no, 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 no. I feel like the majority of <laughs> Americans do not know. Like maybe they heard it in high school, but they don't remember the French Revolution. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I do no, feel no. like this one it gets overshadowed by oh, you certainly. know the bigger revolution that followed afterwards. Yeah, I the know. true revolution, according to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. It 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 survived. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, I think it, it reminds me now that the reason that they did not talk about the election is they don't want people to know. Actually, yeah, an election <laughs> happened. In, like, <laughs> the universal right. suffrage election. Yeah. I wouldn't. Yeah. Although universal suffrage. Yeah, probably like I mean, men. Only men. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think women could vote. Like the women. Could, yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I don't think women could vote. Only men. I think. Yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that. But I. I thought it's only men. Yeah. That's really progressive, but. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, the like what? Sinyat Sen doesn't come off as the kind of guy who wants to let women vote. No, but again, like seven years later, a real communist revolution happened and women could vote. So, I mean, it didn't mean anything that they could (laughs) vote. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, uh, they could vote. I I did kind of research a little bit on elections because since we're talking about it. um, Nice. I think after the the, the 1912-13, I forgot what it was. I mean, because my memory is bad, but the next election... (laughs) The election... The next election was in 18, which was like a heavily rigged election because all the warlords were fighting. And then the, the next like actual election that was not rigged didn't happen until 1947. That was like a compromise between like the communists and Chiang Kai-shek's forces, no? The nationalists? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like holding uh-huh. that election? Am I wrong? Uh, I don't think it was a com- like the Communist Party did not participate in that election, but it was a way for Chiang Kai-shek to establish some kind of some kind of legitimacy, mm. at least in in the areas not occupied by the communists. Everyone everyone could have voted and could have voted, and they, I don't think the, the president was not elected directly. It was, they elected a parliament first, and then the parliament elected the president, and of course uh, Chiang Kai-shek won. <laughs> so uh, there wasn't really any any other party. I mean there. Opposition parties were allowed, but they were, they were fairly small, so they, they didn't yeah. really challenge him. That he also had the like in the battle scene, Jackie Chan was like, you know, they were getting like shelled, and he was like still passing guns to the soldiers, telling them that they're useless if they don't have guns. <laughs> and then he pissed on the cannon to cool it down, which I didn't know was a real thing, but it's always nice to see new war tactics. Yep. Peeing always helps. <laughs> JC is briefly in this. And he's amazing. I So I saw him in an, like a shot towards the start, and then I kind of didn't track him for the rest of it. He got lost in the uh, mass of people for the rest of the movie for me. Did you, did you see I him think... after the start? No, I think he just signed on to like be the guy who commands the siege of the governor's mansion. Yeah, like really heroically, <laughs> like he just gets that shot, which is great. And he like lifted the revolutionary flag. I think <laughs> he's he's atoning. For one thing, I don't. It was wrong to characterize the Chinese society as feudal. It wasn't feudal. It was just monarchy and imperial. Like I think mm-hmm. feudal, the it was an industrial power, monarchy at that point, sort of. It was a centralized monarchy. It wasn't like because feudalism implies some kind of a lord could have their own land, you know, that sort mm. of thing. It's like after medieval Europe, the absolute monarch basically ended feudalism. But I think Karl Marx used the word feudalism to describe Europe because Europe was feudal. But like China has not been a feudal society 
since like the warring states era, right? like, like thousands of years ago, it was always yeah. been like a absolute monarch. I mean, there was like Sun Yat-sen in this movie is like repeatedly says the two like there's like been a two thousand year long battle to like vote, and that was just weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, that's just a long list of reasons why Jackie Chan did not play this character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine Jackie Chan saying we should have we should vote. <laughs> yeah. That would that would be, that would be terrible. <laughs> like that would be like an unintentional palace coup and he'd just get fucking beheaded. And yeah, that I would mean, suck. How could he embrace the Hong Kong police after that, you know? I, I don't know. <laughs> The movie did play up the, the nationalist aspect of the revolution mm-hmm. a little bit more than more than it did have in a way. Oh, really? Like they all from the very beginning, they have like two aspects. Because remember, one thing that they did hint at but didn't talk about was the Qing Dynasty was a minority gov- was a minority rule. Like yeah, the Man- yeah. The Man- they mentioned were, that. Yeah. Oh yeah. They did. Yeah. Okay. Good. But yeah, the, like so I know you want to talk about the Yes, yes, so I, I can talk a lot about them. <laughs> okay, so, uh, let's not go that way. <laughs> all right, the Manchus were a... They were not like the Mongols. They were not a nomadic tribe. Like some pe- Many people have the misconception that they were nomadic, like like the Huns or Mongols, or like the the, the Goth uh, and the, the Germanic people. But they were, they were not. Like By the time they invaded China, they were mostly agricultural by that point. But they still have this kind of... a maintain a system of military government that's similar to nomadic tribes because they they call them they their government is divided into flags like if, if you have you're in a clan that carry the flag you know, like and they have different colors which is kind of interesting because they're different clans have different color of flags ethnically or you know in terms of lineage they're related to the some of the siberian people so their language is Oh. I'm not sure if I pronounce it right, but oh sure, they're... but they are like relatively close geographically, or like the, where they came from is relatively close geographically, right? To Russia, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Ethnically, they are more related to the Siberians, and they established their predecessor. I don't think, I don't think they're called Manchus in the very beginning. In like first, I think they have a different name, but I forgot what it was. They had they ruled a a state called the the Jin state. Which is the same word as gold in Chinese. The Jin State ruled at was around the, around the same time as the Song Dynasty, and they often raided the the China proper, the Song Dynasty, or they they they, they called the Middle Kingdom back then. So they often conducted raids, and they 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 did a lot of they invaded and did, did a bunch of shit. I don't want to. I don't. So they had many wars, and they were conquered along with China by the Mongols. And when the Mongols left, they kind of still stayed small until 1600, when China was in Ming Dynasty in the 1600s, and the the imperial capital, the empire was kind of decaying. There were a lot of economic crises or hunger, yeah. So also and so forth. The the government was very corrupt. Just people couldn't live. So a lot of peasants start start uprising. We call it uprisings, insurrections. I think the uprising was a preferred term by the official history, but I think they're more <laughs> like a insurrection or a rebellion. So a lot of those happened. And the Ming Dynasty was overthrown by a guy named uh, Li Zicheng, who was a kind of a peasant rebel leader. And Li served as a head of state for, for a new country for only a few days. And then the Manchus, who was in the north, where they were like the north, where northeastern China is currently today, so they used that kind of power vacuum, the chaos inside China to China to invade, and somehow they were able to win. But by the time and, of this movie, they're already like several hundred years into their rule, right? And pretty fucking decadent by then, I think. Like totally just sick fucks, essentially, like a dynasty of sick fucks falling apart over themselves, right? Yeah, you're you're actually on the money about that. So, <laughs> but it's a little bit complicated. It's it's not. Yeah, pretty much this this uh, this empire set up by the Manchus ruled the territory of China for hundred the years. Then I think they 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 pretty much were pretty stable until the Opium War happened. Then the Opium War ha- happened. Then the Taiping Rebellion happened, and so yeah, the the government was in in rapid decay, and they they don't have money anymore. 
But there are two things that happened in the end, during the end of that empire. There's a prominent figure named Empress Cixi, if you have heard of her. Mm-hmm. She, the, the empress in the movie was, was, not, was not her. And she was much older and died before, before the, long before the revolution started. So she was seen as a very conservative. You know, she was power behind the scenes because the emperor, the emperor was very young. And so she was having a lot of power. And when the, the emperor Guangxu, who was the second to last, grew up and invited a, some of the Western reformers, one of them was Kang Youwei, probably. It was, Kang Youwei was mentioned in the movie. And he was uh, a monarchist, but he was a reformer. So he wanted to bring Western-style schools. He wanted to have the kind of a Western constitutional government to wants to imitate Japan, the Meiji, Meiji Restoration in Japan. He was inspired by it. So he was invited by the emperor to carry out the reform. So what he did was he abolished, he tried, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> succeed, but he tried to abolish the civil examination, sorry, the, the what they call it, the civil service exams and replace with more Western style exams or putting, so did a bunch of those things. And he, but when he and the emperor threatens to the power of the, the empress dowager, who was his aunt, the empress carried out a palace coup and imprisoned the emperor. So that that coup kind of uh, st- pretty much put a, put a, put a stop on all reform efforts. What happened after that was near the very end. I think the ni- in early 1900s, she changed her mind and decided to do some of the reform herself, setting up like more Western style government. So even even she by that point, even though she was conservative, but she thought that the em- the, the empire couldn't really couldn't really continue because of the financial problems, because of Western invasions. So she started what they called if 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 I translate that word, it sounds like the New Deal. What they mm-hmm. called it they call it the New Politics, or New Deal. And they set up a cabinet with a prime minister, but this cabinet was seen as a sham because a majority of the members were from the royal family. So. Imagine if Britain has has had a cabinet, all the ministers were from the royal family. They, not they really, have a house of lords. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> of course, like that reform did not satisfy the revolutionaries who continued to push push forward. And I think when the Empress Cixi, when she died, the younger woman in you see in the movie. She and her son, which was like three years old when he became emperor, these two and the other parts of the royal family, they were, they didn't have the political resolve she had. They, they didn't have the, they're, I don't know. They, they used, you, you said they're sick fucks, and by that <laughs> point, they, they pretty much were. <laughs> okay, so that that Yuan Shigai guy, you, you saw, like he was invited at last minute as a general, right? Mm-hmm. And that happened because Yuan Shigai, he was considered a military innovator. So because he was the one who improved how the weapon weaponry and structure of the military, but because he offended some of the royal family who were like the Manchus, because he Yuan Shigai was a Han ethnicity and the Manchu family didn't trust him, so he was fired. And when the Wuhan rebellion started when the revolution started all of those royal generals couldn't fight so they had to invite him back all the the, the army was uh, was in such shambles that they couldn't even defend against like the ragtag guys you know they, they just storm start storming places and they couldn't fight until they invited this disgraced general back against guy that's what, the fact that he as this kind of a figure who kind of leans both ways could get power in the very end, just illustrate just how decrepit the government structure that was left was. Do you know anything about, like, I've read a little bit about the fate of that final emperor there, the little kid. Do you know anything about that? Um, Yes, yes. He had a very interesting life. Uh, Has any of you seen The Last Emperor? So there there is a movie about him that was... I think that movie was pretty accurate in terms of what happened to The Last Emperor, but there was a... I think he's a he's a tragedy. I think a lot of his life he didn't really control. I mean, he was made an emperor at the age of three, and so after the revolution, he was like six years old. So yeah. he he continued to live in a palace like they gave him 
pretty much like a retirement home in in his own house. A six year old with a uh, retirement home. Yeah. Well, wasn't he installed by the Japanese? Briefly. Yes, I'll, I'll, we'll, I'll, get I'll, we'll get there. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, so you're jumping way too ahead. <laughs> so many things that happened to him. I mean, I think the last emperor covered a, a great deal of it, but he was kind of cloistered in, in, in his palace as a kind of like this uh, ret- retired emperor, you know, like, and so he was, he didn't, he was having some somewhat of a luxury life until during the post Yuan Shigai regional warfare regional warlords fighting one one of the warlords named uh, Feng Yuxiang Feng Yuxiang I think I, I don't know if you pronounce it right he occupied Beijing and uh, ex- expelled the emperor at some point I think before that sorry I jumped way too ahead <laughs> so in the 1910s to 1900s okay do you remember by the way do you, oh my god there's so many so many things happening do you remember that <laughs> that that general in the movie who was forced to be the leader of revolution oh god that was so yeah. funny that was so yeah. so funny <laughs> So Li Yuan Hong, his name is Li Yuan Hong. So when Yuan Shigai uh, died, uh, and before the World War fighting started, Li Yuan Hong was became president. He was successor to Yuan Shigai. So he, this reluctant revolutionary, like this <laughs> leader, this comical, funny guy, became president, and he got into a dispute with a guy named Duan Qirui, one of, one of the early generals in the Qing dynasty, but later become a Republican by reluctantly also. Duan Qirui, he, he was Yuan Shigai's uh, former associate. He was appointed a job similar to a prime minister, and he was leading the cabinet. cabinet. So when Li Hong tried to fire him for some political reasons, Duan's trying to use some legal loophole saying the firing was illegitimate. So they call it I can't say in English, it's called Fu Yuan Zhizheng, the dispute between the administration and the cabinet, like the or the parliament, yeah. whatever that is called. So when that happened, a general named Zhang Xun, who was a former Qing general, he brought his own ragtag army into the capital and proclaimed that the last emperor was restored. Like it was so comical, it was such a failure <laughs> that he brought the troops in and then pretty much Nobody supported him. Like every governor of every province said, this is bullshit <laughs> because no one uh, wants. Like Juan Guaido. Yep. Juan Guaido. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this this Qing general Zhang Xun, he sent a bunch of a ragtag troops into Beijing in the pretext of solving the dispute between between Li Yuanhong and Duan Qirui to solve the cabinet president dispute, and he was trying to use the opportunity. Restore this emperor, and that. So after the failure, I think at some point another warlord. So some some time in between, I forgot exactly what event when so many things happened. But uh, <laughs> this uh, warlord named Feng Yuxiang entered Beijing at some point later and and expelled the the last emperor. So he was, I think, he was in his teenage years. He was in his twenties. He was like a teenager, like 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 you guys were, and. He was expelled from this luxury living. I think I think he was forced to live. He might have lived in Tianjin, one of those like foreign occupied, like foreign land. They call it Zujia. I mean, what they call it Zujia was not exactly occupied land. It was like a, it was considered like embassy, but much larger. Yeah, yeah like a protectorate kind of thing. Until Japan invaded the the, the northern states, like the. The three provinces, not sorry, they're called states. I mean, sorry, I was being American centric, <laughs> not states. <laughs> so, when Japan later invaded in the three provinces in the Northeast, the Japanese brought him to proclaim him to be the emperor of the state of Manchukuo, the state of Manchuria. So, he was a puppet emperor for Japan for a long time. Uh, and he didn't have any power. So, Japan was pretty much telling him what to do. So after World War II ended, he was arrested by Soviet Union. The Soviet Union occupied the, the northeast China to fight Japan. They caught him. He tried to flee, and they, they, they put him in the USSR jail. I'm not sure how Stalin treated him. Probably not well. <laughs> uh, as far as I know, he ends up living in mainland China. Yeah. The thing I'm not sure about is whether did he... Stay in Soviet jail until Communist Party took over, or did he like? 
Oh. Did he stay in like a nationalist, like Chiang Kai-shek's jail? He stayed in one of those prisons. So like, I mean, when when later podcasts were talking about which jail you were in, it's probably very depressing life. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he was, uh, eventually he got, ended up in the communist jail. And he, he he spent some time there doing hard labor, and eventually he was amnestied by by the Communist Party, like Mao or some or Mao's associates amnestied him. And pretty much, he just lived a quiet life. He wrote a memoir called uh, "The First Part of My Life," talking about what happened. Near the end of his life, he was basically saying good things about the Communist Party, saying how they reformed him, and how how he was a <laughs> reeducated. Yeah, reeducated how how they treated him so well and how like how monarchy was wrong, you know, how the how the communist revolution actually freed the people, you know, he he, he was saying all those sorts of things. Thanks to you for joining us yet again. Up next is Professor Edward Friedman talking about nationalism in China after the nineteen eleven revolution. <laughs> The 1911 revolution, which is the overthrow of the monarchy and the establishment of republican government inside of China, used to be celebrated very much both by the uh, Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese National Party, the Kuomintang, in terms of a heritage of Sun Yat-sen. And on the Republic of China on Taiwan especially within the uh, Guomindang, uh, it's still celebrated very much that way. Sun Yat-sen representing nationalism, economic development, and uh, democracy. But that message is ever less popular among the Chinese Communist Party. So increasingly, the 1911 revolution is a bit of trouble for the uh, Chinese Communist Party. They certainly don't want to do it in terms of Sun Yat-sen as the harbinger of a democratic republic. And you have to remember that the republic held national parliamentary elections in 1912-1913 and was about to uh, choose a prime minister, Sun Jiao-ren, when he was assassinated. And increasingly, in the People's Republic of China, the uh, 1911 revolution is sort of part of a period of chaos and weakness, which will require the Chinese Communist Party with a firm hand to unify China and make China strong and to allow China to stand up against so-called imperialists. And so Sun Yat-sen, as sort of uh, the uh, person who is promoting a democratic republic, is somehow an embarrassment increasingly in the People's Republic. In fact, many people uh, on the mainland celebrate the person who carried out the military coup in 1913 against the Democratic Republic, Yuan Shikai, because they're looking for some way to legitimate a strong center with order and stability and not so much focus on the issue of democracy. Has this changed at all since the beginning of the People's Republic? So, like, under Mao, was the 19th Revolution held differently than it is today? So, when Mao, Stalinist Party, and the Red Army first come to power, they come to power running against Chiang Kai-shek. And they present the Chiang Kai-shek government as a very repressive military dictatorship, which it was. And they promise, in place of that military repressive tyranny, they promise a new democracy. And Mao's policy, as he's coming to power, is something called new democracy. And they stress how much they're going to have coalition government representing all the groups inside of China and how they have genuine, supposedly, local elections in villages and they present themselves as new democracy. This is a period in which they will carry out a land reform, which is based on land to uh, the tillers, uh, as part of the new democracy, uh, empowering household uh, farming. But then, starting around 1953, they begin the transition to what they call socialism, actually meaning 
controlled by the party state and having very little to do with anything anybody else would recognize as socialism. And in empowering the uh, party state starting in 53, taking the land back from the uh, farming households and collectivizing them and making state-owned enterprises the center of the economy and uh, destroying uh, people of any independent thought, they really walk away from the new democracy and they have the period of the so-called transition to socialism. And that's the beginning of the transformation of how Sun Yat-sen is going to be uh, presented. He's no longer going to be, obviously, a harbinger of a democratic republic. So it's a, it's a long history in which the presentation of Sun and the republic changes. But it really, I think, on uh, for the People's Republic, goes back to that so-called transition to socialism. Do you think that this sort of more problematic current representation of Sun is... Do you think the release of a movie about him in 2011 is an anomaly? Uh, you'll have to describe the movie to me. Um, so it's, it focuses on Jackie Chan as Huang Jing and Sun sort of running around trying to um, make the revolution work abroad and basically Jackie Chan carrying it off within the country. As Huang Xing. Yes. Yeah, well, there's something to that. Uh, that's not an inaccurate uh, view, uh, that Sun was the guy who was uh, organizing uh, overseas Chinese, as they were called at that time, to uh, contribute money which would support these uh, efforts, especially in uh, Southeast uh, Asia. Uh, Nanyang Hua Ren, uh, as they would have been called back then. And it is true that uh, Huang Xiang was much more active inside of uh, the uh, country. But the actual so-called 1911 revolution is much more the decay of the, uh, the Manchu Qing dynasty, uh, which is a very, very long process. It isn't so much that somebody in 1911 uh, pushed over a very strong empire. It's that it had rotted out from the inside, going back at least to the 1790s, when the corruption and polarization had become really, really extreme. And there began the first of many popular rebellions, the White Lotus Rebellion. And so the uh, Manchu Qing dynasty is really decaying from within by the uh, 1790s, and it's just a long process of decay. And I'd say the final blow um, comes in 1905 when they realize that they do have to modernize, that they can't continue to run the empire the old way, and they abandon the old exam for literati based on the Confucian classics, and they're going to care about modern science and technology and so on. And that gives the old elite absolutely no stake in the ruling order anymore. Their heirs are not going to be the heirs of uh, power in the future. And so it isn't that Huang Xiang really ran around and overthrew uh, the revolution at home. It's that you really have a decaying situation and events occurs in 1911, having to do with who owns railroads, and one little military garrison rebels, and then the armies which uh, would support the Manchu Qing dynasty essentially refuse to put down the rebellion, and the old ruling lineage, the Isengiro, uh Manchu uh, ruling uh, lineage, is isolated, and it just doesn't exist as a power group, and they begin all sorts of racist pogroms, slaughtering Manchus all over the country, and it's over. So it, it's really not, if you have a notion of a revolution as some kind of mobilization of a revolutionary army or party which defeats um, the, the old order, that's really not what happened in, in China. The old order really decayed from the inside so it was left with virtually uh, no support and just collapses with the last push. This film was criticized for 
not at all mentioning any of the attempts at reforms in the late Manchu period. Do you think current politics would explain that lack oh, of... Oh, no, 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 no. So here's something which really has changed in recent years. So after 1911, 1911 revolution is legitimated in terms of toppling the Manchus and putting the Han into uh, power. But then they have to face the issue into power over what? Mm. Um, remember, nationalism is a new thing. Nationalism is new all over the world. Germany is founded in 1870. I mean, it's, China is not that uh, late. It's, it's a very, really a late 19th, early 20th century uh, growth in most of the world. So the decision is essentially made in 1912-13 that they want to be the heir of Manchu conquests. Even though up to then they've been uh, Fan Man, anti-Manchu, the Manchus have uh, conquered Mongolia. The Manchus have conquered East Turkestan. The Manchus have conquered uh, Tibet. The Manchus uh, had conquered Taiwan. The Manchus had conquered all sorts of Southeast Asian hill empires, Dai, Miao, uh, etc. And they want to be heir. They want a large China. Now, all nationalisms tend to do the same. The only difference here is that they're going to be the heir to the Manchus, which have created an extraordinary large gunpowder empire. And so they suddenly turn from anti-Manchu to pro-Manchu, and they reinvent the Manchu as if somehow or other they're actually blood Chinese, even though the day before they were alien foreigners who had invaded, conquered, and humiliated China uh, for 200-plus years. And the CCP today really continues that view of wanting a positive depiction of uh, the Manchu period. So they don't like the description I just gave of the continuing decay. They will do what you were just suggesting. They will stress all the attempts at reform, all the attempts at modernization. But this film, specific, this use, film specifically doesn't. This film endorsed by the CCP specifically. This is definitely CCP. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, therefore, their presence... So Mao never would have done that, by the way. Mao never would have uh, done that. But so the present modernization agenda is increasingly presented as a continuation of the modernization efforts of the Qing dynasty. Interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask about how mainland China deals with Taiwan also feeling that they're the heir of the 1911 revolution. Like, how does, how do they square that circle? So Taiwan is indeed uh, conquered by the Manchus around 1680. Before 1680, it had never been uh, ruled by a uh, government on the uh, uh, mainland of uh, Asia. And up to about 1600, it's basically Austronesian nations, eight Austronesian nations, the second largest ethnic community on Taiwan in 1600 would have been Okinawans. It's just a matter of how wooden ships did not easily get across the Taiwan Strait to Taiwan. In fact, the word Taiwan doesn't even exist till around uh, 1600 on Ming Dynasty maps. The island we call Taiwan is called Eastern Barbarians, and it was seen as an island of cannibals, which it certainly uh, had, and certainly not a civilized place that was part of uh, China. And so when the 1911 revolution occurs, Taiwan at that point is a colony of Japan after the uh, Qing dynasty in 1895 lost the war to the uh, Meiji uh, Japanese uh, dynasty. And as part of settlements, of wars in those days. You can think Alsace-Lorraine. You can think of Canada going to uh, England if you want. The loser always gave up a piece of uh, territory. And Japan wanted something in the heartland of China, like Shandong, piece of Shandong. And the Qing dynasty wanted to get rid of something that wasn't really Chinese and was useless. And so they gave away Taiwan because Taiwan, I mean, it was this cannibalist frontier. So at the time of the 1911 revolution, there is no interest of thinking about 
Taiwan is part of uh, the Republic of uh, China. Uh, and Taiwan is not thought about as part of China until after the uh, Japan-America part of the Pacific War of World War II and the United States Navy defeats the Japanese Navy in the Battle of Midway and it destroys Japan's aircraft carriers and anybody who understands, understand that Japan is going to lose the war in the Pacific. How much blood it will take, how much treasure it will take, how much time it will take, you could argue about, but it's essentially going to be over. And at that time, Franklin Roosevelt, President of the United States, begins to think about what the post-war order should look like. And he says to Chiang Kai-shek, at that time, uh, the leader of the Republic of China, whose government was in Chongqing fighting Japanese invaders, what do you think the post-war situation should look like? And Zhang, who has a very expansionist view of the uh, Chinese uh, nation, says all lost territory should be returned to China. Korea, Burma, Vietnam, Taiwan, and Roosevelt says, okay, Taiwan, <laughs> and pays no attention to Burma, Korea, uh, Vietnam. And so it's only at that time that Taiwan becomes reimagined as part of the Chinese nation. And then the Chinese communists essentially copy Chiang Kai-shek and speak of uh, Taiwan as part of uh, China. And that, that is how Taiwan became part of a, a Chinese uh, nationalist view of what constitutes Chinese nation. But before 1942, uh, virtually no Chinese would have thought of uh, Taiwan as part of China. That's fascinating. Do you know much about how the mainland Chinese film industry assimilated those new ideas of nationalism that were spreading after 1911? So, so for Mao, nationalism was an anti-imperialist mobilization. And for Mao, China was to be the head of the anti-imperialist world, the leader of the anti-imperialist uh, world. And uh, he actually was very seriously committed to that view. Mao, as uh, Chinese uh, unfortunately learned, was very serious about his ideological commitment. So Mao invested a lot of uh, Chinese wealth in trying to support independence wars and uh, new governments in uh, Africa when China was very poor and hungry and and even uh, starving. And so when Mao dies inside of China, that kind of anti-imperialist nationalism was very unpopular. Chinese people believed that they had a lot of needs and a lot of suffering and a lot of problems to be solved, and they wanted uh, far less attention paid to these so-called anti-imperialist efforts, which often actually were anti-Soviet efforts, because Mao became basically anti-Soviet. And so essentially, from mm, Deng coming to power in the wake of Mao's death, and in the subsequent decade, there was virtually no anti-imperialist nationalism inside of China, and nationalism was being reimagined inside of the uh, People's Republic because they no longer had Mao's charisma, and they began to think about what would be the basis of a new nationalism. And a number of things begin to happen then at that time. The really serious communist adoption of what had been Guomindang nationalism, this vision of the greater Manchu uh, Empire as uh, Chinese, so that increasingly the Chinese Communist Party's nationalism and Chiang Kai-shek's nationalism become uh, indistinguishable in many kinds of ways. And then a nationalism based on modernization, economic success, prosperity, uh, raising the standards of living of the uh, people, and uh, then a bit of anti-Japanese nationalism mm. as they begin for the first time to remember the Nanjing Massacre. You know, under uh, Mao, uh, one never 
mourned in Nanjing massacre. Nanjing had been Chiang Kai-shek's uh, capital. From Mao's point of view, the people killed were counter-revolutionaries. Mao never mourned counter-revolutionaries. And Deng really changes Chinese nationalism from this notion of class and class enemies to one of the entire Chinese people being the Chinese uh, nation. And so they begin to look for elements of where Chinese suffered from what foreigners did to them. And so you're going to get a great more stress on a particular uh, view of the opium war, of the Nanjing massacre, and their nationalism is reimagined in China in very fundamental kinds of ways. Do you think that there are any parallels here to China's current slowing GDP growth and along with it expansion projects like the Belt and Road Initiative? I think there are two things at play here. One, one shouldn't underestimate how all nationalisms anywhere in the world, for better or worse, I think have an ethnic racist part to them. Uh, not to be celebrated, but I just think that it, it's, it's true all over the world. That if you want to put it in the nastiest terms, that all nation states have to always fight against fascist elements, within, even democracies, within inside the society. And so I think that that going back to 1911, that rise up the Han was sitting there inside of China, going back to the mobilization against the Manchu. Uh, so there's something I, I think I, I'm, I, I think this is sadly true in uh, all nation states in the world. But then in 1989, 1991, a fundamental transformation occurs. First, you have the democracy movement in China. And you may not think of it this way, and almost nobody remembers it this way, but the first mobilizations against the party in 89 that were put down by force actually occurred in Tibet. Hu Jintao was in charge of putting them down, actually. And then you had the Soviet Union disintegrate in 1991 into uh, ethnic republics, right? Uh, Kazakhstan, Turkestan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, and, and so on. I think this really intensified a paranoia within the Chinese Communist Party that to survive, they had to crush all ethnic and religious movements totally and in the bud before they could get started. And after 1991, this kind of a uh, racist chauvinism grows within the Communist Party, able to build on the old Fan Man Xing Han, race up the Han, going back uh, to uh, 1911. And in the era of Xi Jinping, these forces have simply become dominant within the party. So is that opposed to, was there ever a period under, say, Mao or Deng where... China sort of gestured more towards Soviet-style nationalities policy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Mao condemned Great Han uh, chauvinism, um, was very serious for a long time about copying the uh, Soviet system. That's absolutely right. And in the early reform years in which uh, Hu Yaobang rose to power, he very much had a vision that the Mao-era state had cruelly repressed minorities during the Cultural Revolution, that the Cultural Revolution, destruction of the four olds, as they were called, Suzhou, the, the, the destruction of the four olds was used to wantonly attack uh, minority cultures. And so under Hu Yaobang, you had a period of moving more in the direction of the Soviet ethnic policy and apologizing to the ethnic minorities and restoring cultural artifacts and even rebuilding some of them. But again, by 1991, Hu Yaobang is redefined as the source of the democratic mobilization of 1989 and his caring about ethnic minorities and Japan, if you care, conciliation with Japan, all became seen as negative things which could lead to the disintegration and weakness of China. And so 
post-1991, you really get unleashed ever more of these nastier forces. Thanks again to Yi Wu and Edward Friedman for being on the show. I think that's it for this episode. Our original music comes from Elliot Saltmarsh and Yehuda of Fist with a PH, and our art comes courtesy of Jay Castro. Follow us on Twitter at China Film Pod, like the uproar on the studio Facebook page, and if you can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you could contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash uproar in the studio. <laughs> All proceeds will benefit the upcoming Nationalist Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, starting in upstate New York. We would love it if you could help out. And if you like it, have some thoughts or suggestions, email us at uproar in the studio, all one word, at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be talking about Chinese Zodiac. But before we leave you this week, we just want to share some wisdom from the chairman. To read too many books is harmful. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.